Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 4, Episode 9, How to Talk About It, with John Akira Harold. I think I actually really more than anything just respond to whatever interests me in the moment. Well, in order to like put something out into the world, you kind of have to figure out what you want to be saying. I, I know this is going to change things for me creatively, but I, I don't yet know how. John Akira Harold approaches publishing as a practice and an invitation. As a designer, a printer, and an educator, John's work often centralizes the book for its materiality and timelessness and draws from all different areas of graphic design and production printing and teaching to explore that relationship between the personal and the social. He spoke to us about responding to what interests you as an artist and finding a political home while grappling with wokeness and developing personal politics. Last year, he got a $3,000 grant from RAC, the Regional Arts and Culture Council in Portland, Oregon, to continue this work and to make new work using letterpress and print, type and typography. I love his inquiry into social media and how he talks about social media privileging the voices of the extreme and how social media can intersect with the rest of art and graphic design. Here's John. Uh, my name's John Akira Harold. I am a fourth generation Japanese American of mixed heritage. Uh, my dad is white and my mom's Japanese American, 33 years old, and I've been living in Portland for seven going on eight years, I think. And I'm originally from Colorado, born and raised there. In terms of how identity intersects with work, I feel like it's primarily through the, through the lens of race. So the current work that I do now tends to be around the concept of publishing and is oftentimes, although not exclusively, in print. And I'm really interested in thinking about the ways that publishing can work to coalesce either a group of people or a conversation or just kind of this moment around uh, whatever thing you kind of want to coalesce that energy around. And then it kind of commemorates or culminates that or expresses it within the physicality of a printed thing like a book. That hasn't always kind of been how I've approached creative work and printed work. Um, but I think it's, I think it's what's interesting to me right now about, about creative work. Um, I, I, I would say I'm also kind of in a place where a lot of what I'm interested in really changes and I, if I, like, I don't have a strong sense of who I even am as a creative person. I think I actually really more than anything just respond to whatever interests me in the moment. And then I try to pursue that. I think another thing that really informs what I do creatively is also just kind of this interest in, in graphic design and art. And ever, ever since I learned about uh, typography and image making, I've just never really looked at the world the same. And I think kind of studying those disciplines um, has really opened up things creatively for me, even though their you know, primary application is commercial. Thinking about visual languages and visual work through kind of a lens of graphic design 
really has the it really I think has really helped me a lot in in creating new work and in finding ways to kind of problem solve in the creative process. Prior to that, I I didn't go to school for anything uh, creative. Um, I did get the opportunity to go to school to study a discipline called ethnic studies, um, and I majored in kind of like Asian American studies. It was kind of like a hybrid degree, which was a really interesting experience, and I learned a lot about uh, political things and got to do a lot of kind of like self-exploration during that time as well to understand more about my identity and my own family history um, and what my kind of role was in society and what responsibilities I had because of certain privileges. Um, So I carry a lot of that with me today, although I would say having some time to reflect back on that period, I think that my politics have changed. But then again, similar like my art practice, I'm still just kind of like, I don't really even know how to put words to it. I guess it's just, I don't comfortably fit into a category of like wokeness. And I would say I really would have when I was in college. And I think now my politics are really just kind of grappling with like finding a political home. It just seems like part of the work of being a politically active creative person is also really engaging in this process of developing what your politics are and what the consequences of that are. And I feel like it's just, again, just kind of a constantly changing process that I have a hard time really articulating and and setting in stone. When I think about bookmaking and typography, um, I definitely think of uh, this nonprofit in Portland called the Independent Publishing Resource Center. Um, I got involved with them maybe five years ago and learned about letterpress printing, um, which is a really it's kind of a traditional form of printing um, that was used to create, uh, you know, a variety of types of printed media from books to posters to, to newspapers. But it kind of rests on this idea of uh, setting type by hand. So putting individual letters of words together in a string and something about being able to pick the letters and construct the words without having to kind of pick up a pencil. I was able to make marks on paper. And for me, that was new because i would never really I've never really felt compelled to illustrate, but then it's kind of coupled with you're also using letters and you have the ability to say something and to articulate something and to communicate. So I think it also is a really rich medium for people who are interested in language, um, specifically poets, because setting a lot of words by hand can take a long time. So people who can kind of have an economy of language, I think, and who like printing, I think can find a home in letterpress. So letterpress kind of led to this interest in print, and it also led to an interest in type and typography. From there, I figured out how to learn all the Adobe programs and am still, I still consider myself learning, even though I use them daily. Like there's just so much, there's so much depth to them. Then I also spent a couple years kind of apprenticing with this guy named Mariano Spina, who recently moved to Arizona about a year ago, and he ran a small print shop in Portland that was a really unique uh, business where he was working mostly with artists and just kind of making custom books. And he was really embedded in the music community in Portland and did a lot of show posters and did a lot of like art prints. So I got to learn more about kind of like what it would take to, to run a small shop and make books and just find ways to have more time where I'm spending actually making, making stuff and printing and, and learning how to do it and learning how to put everything together. And so I'd say where the kind of type and bookmaking kind of come together with the political stuff is, um, well, in order to like put something out into the world, you kind of have to figure out what you want to be saying. 
kind of combining it all together is like thinking in a way that for me still feels very kind of academic-y and heady, but then trying to represent that um, a bit abstracted and then also kind of graphically and wrapping it all together in the format of a book. Um, I feel like sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't really do that, but I feel like generally that's kind of, um, I don't know, like a process that I feel like would resonate with my experience. A project I did last year that really was meaningful um, was this this book that I made for in my grandpa's memory that was commissioned by my grandma. Uh, my grandpa uh, passed away a couple years ago and at his memorial service, my grandma kind of wanted to find a way to get the memories of the community together and share them. And, you know, as someone from a different generation, very comfortable with print media, she was like, let's, let's, let's try to get people to write letters and we'll put them together in a book. We'll include some photos and then um, we can just give it out because they live in a, they lived in a small town. My grandma still does. It's, uh, it's called Alamosa, Colorado. It's a really unique place in Southern Colorado. So that project was really great because, you know, I got to read through like 70 or 80 handwritten letters that were all these just kind of people just sharing stories about the time they had spent with my grandpa and just kind of funny times, sad times, meaningful times, everything in between. And so put them together in the layout and printed off maybe 130 copies or so. And my grandma just gave them out to, you know, everyone who would, who came to the service or anyone who's kind of in her network in that, in that community. That was a really cool project because I felt like I got to, use all these skills I've been trying to acquire for the past, you know, five, six years and, and do them and put them into something that I felt like I would want to look back on in years and be like, oh, this is, this was a very worthwhile thing to do. And then another project that was really special is one that I just recently completed and it was actually funded, partially funded by RAC. So thank you, RAC. Um, and it's called AZNBF and it took years to make. And it just took a long time to figure out like how I wanted this book to like speak. And I wanted to do it in collectivity with other people. I reached out to nine different people who all have like a background uh, in, of like, they're either, you know, full Asian or they're like mixed or they're um, mixed Asian and something else. And um, of a, like a variety of sexual orientations, um, mostly men, but not all men, but mostly men and mostly male. And I wanted to talk about masculinity and I wanted to talk about kind of the unique position of that intersection of Asianness and masculinity. It's just an interesting kind of position that I think is really rich in a sense that there's a lot there, but we don't really have a framework for how to understand it or how to talk about it. So I just interviewed people and a lot of them were creatives and just had casual conversations with them about their lives. And I just asked about like, their relationships, their upbringings, their relationship with their parents, uh, how they deal with racism, how they want to grow personally, just kind of off the cuff, but just like meaning, I, I would consider them to be meaningful. Uh, hopefully others did too. Transcribed all the audio. It was like over a hundred pages of audio um, and then categorized every sentence into a category and then printed out those sheets and then chopped them up into sentences and then rearranged them to form like composite poems. So each line from the poem is from a different interviewee and you don't know who it's, they're not attributed to anyone. So in that sense, they're, 
um, a little more anonymous and then gave every interviewee a, a disposable camera and um, paid them a stipend to just go fill it up with photos and show me kind of what their life is like and just give me a perspective through their through their eyes. And so everything got put together in this book called AZMBF and it was set to be released um, right when COVID hit. And so the release got canceled. And so that was also a really special project that I'm still excited to kind of release into the world. And I really have no idea of, I've given it to a few people and they're like, oh, this is sweet, but I haven't really had the opportunity to get, you know, a ton of feedback on it or kind of see how it's going to land with folks. So I'm, I'm excited and interested to see what's going to happen with that. Um, I feel also too, I should shout out um, the work of Dao Strom. So Dao is part of a collective of uh, Vietnamese American women writers called She Who Has No Masters. And some of their work inspired the format for AZMBF. So I feel like it's important to just kind of acknowledge that they didn't do the same exact thing, but like the idea of how do you speak in collectivity as like a kind of group coming from a position, but also like, I don't know, they do like way more stuff. Um, but the, the idea of that, I think kind of inspired this book. So the book is basically a, a combination of image and text. Uh, the images are the, the uh, 35 millimeter photographs that came from the disposable cameras from the nine different people who I interviewed for the project. And the text is pretty big on the page. It's basically set in Arial, which is like a really stock font, but I think it looks pretty all right. Um, and it was printed on a risograph printer, which has, it gives the images uh, a really kind of distinct texture, like it's a bit grainy maybe, and it also prints one color at a time, so each image is just one color. And the images are either red, uh, yellow, kind of a turquoise green, blue, or purple, and they just kind of change throughout the book. And then all the text is, is white and all the negative space is black so when you print you know you have to print on white well you don't have to but i printed on white paper and basically just didn't print the text itself i printed everything around the letters so it's a lot of black it's like when you open up the book i wanted it to kind of feel like you were going into this like kind of space of like kind of like emo darkness because like it's kind of my jam, or at least it was, or it's like this space that I, for some reason, feel comfortable kind of communicating from, but I wanted that not to be so overpowering that it was kind of the aesthetic in and of itself, but I wanted it to be kind of an element of it. So I would say there's this element of kind of like a little bit of darkness to the book, um, but in a way that I hope actually like helps kind of further the message and give it a distinct tone. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say aesthetically about the book is that it was all done like 100% in my studio. Um, it was a run of 150. And so, you know, each copy was really handled like quite a bit. And I think I put more care into this project, into this physical production than I probably have anything, any other thing in my life. My hope is that some of the detail work like really shines and, and comes through visually when people are visually and also just kind of like 
is, is effective when you're actually engaging with the work. The book is bound using this method uh, called Japanese stab binding. And it is a really old way of binding books where you take a stack of loose pages and on the edge that you're going to bind, you drill holes through the, through the top and out the bottom. And then you, you stitch them together with this uh, thread that's called waxed linen thread. It's a specific type of thread that basically is meant to be archival so that it doesn't have any acids in it so that if you have the book 20 years from now, hopefully it won't leach any chemicals into the paper and, and ruin the quality of the book. Um, and it will hopefully still last. And then as well as that, each cover was uh, debossed, which is a way of saying a, a graphic or a shape was scored or engraved into the cover paper. The cover paper's thick, and I use this machine called a digital die cutter. So it's very tactile, it's very textural, as well as functional, hopefully. So. So the future is, is a lot of anxiety right now, and that is affecting my work in a sense of, like, I'm not sure really what's important to be doing right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, relatable. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world, like right now, everything feels very urgent. Uh, and I feel like work should be engaging with that urgency and kind of responding to, you know, current social and political life. Um, but I'm, yeah, I, I, I can't give you a good answer. I'm not sure kind of what, I, I know this is going to change things for me creatively, but I, I don't yet know how. Yeah, kind of an ideal future as an artist and as a Portland community member. Um, I would really like to continue to teach. Um, the IPRC, who I mentioned earlier, uh, gave me the opportunity to um, create a class last year and teach in this program that was like a nine-month program. And um, that was, last year was the second year that we did it. And, and I really enjoy teaching. So I would, I would love to someday kind of have a, a more stable teaching gig um, preferably at like a university or somewhere that's working with like adults or young adults. I think that's kind of an age group that I am interested in working with and doing that maybe like a part-time, like one teaching, like one course a term or something like that. And, um, I'm really interested in, you know, trying to make a living more in a design space as well, whether that's, you know, totally just commercial work or whether it's kind of at that intersection of art and design. It's, um, it's definitely something I'm interested in for, for myself, both creatively and professionally. And is what I would say I spend a lot of time kind of working towards now. So ideally in the future, I would have some sort of setup to where kind of this, the creative world and the professional world continue to merge and merge even more so. But I think that that could be possible in Portland. And as like a Portland person living here in the future, I think what I want is leadership in place that really responds to the community's needs. And I want the community to feel like they're heard in our local government and that local government is like 
by the people for the people, accountable and effective. And really takes advantage of the fact that Portland is a smaller place. So I think we can, we can try things out here. We can make changes um, and we can do things that can meet the specific needs of what people in Portland need. Um, so I think I would like to see, yeah, leadership that just like really is doing a great job and effective. <laughs> I think art can like help shape hearts and minds and I'm not sure how it can help us get there, but I guess in the past, I've seen a lot of art really change how people think about otherness and perception and um, representation by putting creators from marginalized backgrounds in the, at the helm and letting them kind of dictate what content is gonna look like. Um, so I think that can be really effective and that's really necessary. Yeah, I, for me, it's always like, I wanna create work that makes me feel like that was a worthwhile endeavor. Um, but coming into a project with that mindset is sometimes really um, challenging. So I'm a big fan of just kind of like developing kind of a, a practice. It could be daily. It could be like three times a week where you just kind of engage in something, set a timer and just do it no matter what. And you might just come up with stuff you're really not stoked on. Um, but what I find is usually when you start getting into stuff at about like 15 to 18 minutes, then you usually are at a place that seems inspiring and like maybe something creative could happen that otherwise would not have happened had you not just kind of forced yourself to sit down or force yourself to kind of engage in whatever it is you want to be doing. Um, so there's that. And then there's also, I really like the concept of an archive and I really like people making their own archives out of just regular mundane things in their lives. And I think that smartphones for those who have them have really opened up a lot of opportunities for for individuals to be able to just kind of document their daily experience, whether that's taking a picture of something every day and just kind of having a record of that, or whether that's like, you, you, you get so much data from just your phone. And so I feel like there's creative ways that you can kind of mine through that information and just take the time to kind of represent it some way visually. I think that's like a really fun, um, thing to do that really gives you kind of insight on things that you may not otherwise think of. Um, and then for people who are like visually oriented um, to be able to take that and put that into something that's like a visually appealing package, I think is also just like, I like, I love that stuff. I love it when people make archives of their own experience in whatever way they want to. Um, and just seeing the way in which they do it and what they choose to pay attention to, I think is, a fascinating practice both both as someone who's doing it but also as someone who's like experiencing it i hope you get a chance to check out john's beautiful work on his website at johnakiraherald.com that's j-o-h-n-a-k-i-r-a-h-a-r-r-o-l-d.com and you can also find him on instagram at john akira harold this episode was sponsored by the Oregon Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, the Kenton Action Plan, North Portland Community Works, and the Oregon Cultural Trust. Thank you so much for your sponsorship. The episode was written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Matt Larimer. The music for this episode was written and produced by Standing on End. Check them out at standingonend.bandcamp.com or on Instagram at standingonend.
If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie. Thanks so much.